This is a CBC Podcast. So what is your message to the environment minister? My message to him and to the government would be, I am disappointed that this exemption happened, and maybe a second one. I think it's really unfortunate, it was unnecessary, but dig in and don't allow any more. Because I think the future of climate policy really depends on not unraveling the carbon price. Some high stakes, according to this economist, between the Liberals' carbon tax carve-out, another potential exemption, and a report that says the government risks missing its climate goals, we've got a lot to ask the Environment Minister. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, Stephen Gilbo is with us to talk about the fate of the climate fight and whether his job is on the line. We'll also look at whether the federal price on carbon is actually working. And we're going to bring you some extraordinary personal conversations with MPs about their connections to the opioid crisis. Plus, lest we forget, how much harder is it to remember our history in an age of disinformation? But first, what's the real state of Canada's fight against climate change? The House is now in session. Targets and plans have come and gone. And Canada has yet to deliver on any. Meanwhile, the need to reverse the trend on Canada's greenhouse gas emissions has grown only more pressing. This is not my first time sounding the alarm, and I will continue to do so until Canada turns the tide. It is a turbulent time for Canada's fight against climate change. This week, the Independent Commissioner of the Environment, Jerry DeMarco, says Canada is at risk of missing its climate goals. It comes on the heels of the Liberal decision to pause part of the carbon tax by giving a three-year break to those who heat their homes with oil. And there's another possible exemption to the Liberal climate plan waiting in the wings, an impending vote in the Senate on legislation that would scrap the tax on some fuels used for heating and drying grain on farms. Bill C-234 aims to extend that to natural gas and propane. The Senate is expected to vote on it in the coming weeks. The bill already... All of it has sparked plenty of political back and forth. Let's see how far off Justin Trudeau's carbon tax disaster is for meeting those targets. Because so far, he hasn't met a single solitary target when it comes to greenhouse gas reduction. So we now know, by Justin Trudeau's own admission, that the carbon tax is not a climate plan. Mr. Speaker, uh, it was with uh, confusion and consternation that I uh, noted uh, the way the NDP voted with the Conservatives against one of the most successful measures Canada has ever seen in the fight against climate change. Putting a price on pollution is exactly uh, how we've managed to bend the curve on our emissions faster than other G7 countries over the past two years. Uh, Now those are the politicians, but what does the data actually tell us? about whether the federal carbon tax is working. Chris Reagan is the former chair of the Eco-Fiscal Commission, which advocated for the carbon tax. We have evidence um, in British Columbia from their carbon tax that's been in place for a lot longer than the federal policy, that it has been reducing emissions. We have proof in Quebec's cap-and-trade system that has been in place since 2014 that it is reducing emissions. I honestly actually think that for the federal carbon price, it's only been in place for 2018, and it's been in place at a low level. So I actually think we don't yet have the data that we need to really come up with a definitive determination of how successful it's been. 
But even without that data, Reagan argues the carbon tax remains one of the least costly ways to reduce emissions. You look to the United States, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a huge piece of legislation, not based on a carbon price. It's going to be a very expensive uh, policy because basically you're giving subsidies to a lot of low-carbon things, whether it's car batteries or other things. Um, But subsidies tend to be extremely expensive. And, you know, I think we need to think about fiscal responsibility as well in this country. And if you start spending a lot more on emissions reductions than you need to, then that's going to be a concern too. A lot of economists support carbon taxes. They include Nobel Prize winners and several former heads of the U.S. Federal Reserve. But that doesn't mean that there is absolute consensus. The way to do it is to make investments in a green economy. The way to do it is to invest in other public goods like public transportation. Um, uh, These are the kinds of things that are really going to accelerate decarbonization. Carbon pricing isn't going to do that. Professor Jessica Green studies climate governance at the University of Toronto. She disagrees that the carbon price is the right weapon in the fight to reduce emissions. It's become too tightly wrapped in partisanship to sell politically, she says, and just isn't worth it. I think at the end of the day, what's become clear is that carbon pricing isn't worth uh, the political costs. If the federal government or provincial governments need to invest a lot of political resources in putting in place climate policies, then carbon pricing is just the wrong horse to pick. So, is this carbon policy worth the heat? To talk about this, Stephen Gilbo is the federal environment minister. Welcome back to the House. Thank you very much, Catherine. Let's pick up on what we just heard from Jessica Green. Is your government's carbon tax carve-out proof that the politics of carbon pricing don't really work? No, I respectfully disagree with her analysis. We've provided our own analysis this week, Environment and Climate Change Canada, the officials that shows that carbon pricing has enabled us to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by about a third since we've put it in place in in 2019. So it is not the only tool in our toolbox to fight climate change for sure, but it is is a very important one. So there's no way Canada can reach its 2030 commitments if we remove a tool that gives us a third of our emission reduction, unless the finance minister tells me that I have somehow access to unlimited sources of capital to invest in decarbonization in the transportation sector, in the building sector, in the industrial sector, in the oil and gas sector, which I doubt she will do. We need You take pricing. it, though, to be clear. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Listen, we will get to your 2030 goals in a moment. I want to talk, though, about this idea of carve-outs. You have said very clearly no more carve-outs. But as you know, the Senate could pass Bill C-234, which would give exemptions to some farmers for natural gas and propane use. Were you wrong, Minister Gilbo, to promise something, no more carve-outs, that's actually beyond your control right now? Well, I, I said that, and you probably heard the Prime Minister loud and clear on, on that as well, who also said that there would be no more carve-outs. So it's not just the, the Environment and Climate Change Minister that has said that, but the Prime Minister has has said it as well. As you well know, um, the Liberal government doesn't control senators anymore. The, the vast majority of senators that are in the Senate now are independent senators that we've nominated, but the, there's only a handful of remaining lib- Liberal senators. We don't tell senators what to do or how to vote or or not to vote. The Conservative Party does that with their conservative senators. We don't do that. And we'll see what what happens in the Senate. I I don't actually understand how that answers the question. You promised no more carve-outs. The Senate could put in place another carve-out. Why did you make the promise? 
Well, we'll see what the Senate does, and then we'll see how the government reacts to a, an eventual decision that, that the Senate will, will take on this. I don't think that it should be taken as a given that the Senate will necessarily pass this. We'll, we'll have to see. I'm not saying one way or the other, but the decision hasn't been made yet by the Senate. Are you saying that you are trying to to sway some of them not to vote for this carve-out? Are you making a pitch to them? I've had conversations with some senators on on, on that particular bill. But again, we don't dictate how senators vote in, in the Senate. The Conservative Party does that. We don't. Okay. Given that you have said that there will be no more exemptions as long as you are environment minister, does this piece of legislation put your job on the line? Would you have to resign as environment minister if there's another exemption? As I've said, Catherine, we, we don't know what the Senate will, will do with this bill and then how the House will, will react to, to an eventual decision. And the prime minister has said that as well. You've heard the prime minister, like I have, say that there would be no more exemption to, to carbon pricing. But you have said that you it will not happen as long as you are environment minister. So I am trying to understand, are you saying that the principle here is if there is another exemption, you will stop being the environment minister? I'm confident that there will be no more exemption to carbon pricing, as the prime minister has said. Chris Reagan told us that the future of climate policy depends on your government not unraveling the carbon price. Do you agree that the future of your signature policy is at stake? As I as I said earlier in the interview, we, we can't achieve our, our 2030 targets without carbon pricing. So we need this to, to continue on if we want to achieve our, our 2030 uh, climate goals. As I said, it's providing almost 30%, not quite 30%, but almost 30% of, of the emissions reduction. There are no other measures out there that I can replace carbon pricing with that would provide as much emission reduction and pollution reduction. So I, I, I would agree with Mr. Regan, we need carbon pricing. Uh, let's dig into those 2030 goals that you mentioned a moment ago. As the audience heard that clip a moment ago, the Independent Commissioner for Environment and Sustainable Development said this week Canada is not on track to meet its climate goals. Can you v- vow to Canadians that you will hit those 2030 targets? Because you're, you're not on a path to do it right now. I think if you look carefully at what the commissioner said, he said that he's worried that we won't be able to meet our our 2030 goals, that the window of opportunity to put in place measures to achieve that is closing, but that it's still feasible. And I I agree with that. And and frankly, the commissioner hasn't said anything that I haven't said personally in the past. When we presented our emission reduction plan last year, I said this plan, and, and it was saluted as the most comprehensive, transparent, detailed plan in the history of Canada by the International Institute for Sustainable Development, Greenpeace, uh, the David Suzuki Foundation. But I was the first one to say that plan doesn't take us to our 2030 goals. We need to do more. And since last year, and and the commissioner's assessment is based on, on a plan that's almost a year old now, we've deployed a number of new measures, but we have new measures coming into the window to continue our fight against climate change, uh, namely uh, new methane regulations that we'll, we'll be announcing either before or at, at COP28. So, so Minister, uh, Minister, I'm, I'm going to jump in here because I think I think a lot of people will be very interested in, in the answer here, and I just want to be crystal clear about it. You can pledge beyond a shadow of a doubt that Canada is going to meet those 2030 goals? Without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, you, we're doing everything we can. And, and right now, the plan that we've that we've tabled gets us to 85% of our 2030 goals. So we're not we're not there. We're getting close. And we need to continue. We have seven more years 
to continue deploying measures and putting in place investments that will help decarbonize in, in different sectors to ensure that we achieve our, our 2030 goals. So I'm not saying it's a done deal and we can all go back home and, and you know take care of our gardens or whatever. What I'm saying is that it's still possible to do it, but it's only possible if we continue working hard. And it's working. We are decarbonizing the electricity sector at a rate almost no one had anticipated. Uh, you say it's working. The, Jerry DeMarco said, we found the measures most critical for reducing emissions had not been identified or prioritized. But we, we only have a moment left. And I think this is the core question that people will want to hear you on, Minister. Between the carve-out of your signature policy and a report saying you aren't on track to meet your goals, why should Canadians trust the government to keep its word on the environment right now? Look at what experts are saying. I mean, we've already reduced emissions by the equivalent of, of removing from our roads 11 million vehicles. When we came into power in Canada, climate pollution was on the rise. We were going to be 12% above our 2030 targets. And now, according to the latest estimates, we're 8% below the 2005 levels. So it's tens of millions of tons of climate pollution we've removed from the Canadian economy and from the atmosphere. We we are changing our economy. We are changing our society. When, it, when you look at investment in public transit, what's happening with electrification of transportation, how companies are going electric, whether it's in the, in the aluminum sector, in the steel sector. We're working to decarbonize the oil and gas sector. We will have a framework for, for the cap on oil and gas emissions by the end of the year. Frankly, I would there note has a framework been... is not the same as the draft regulations you promised, though. Well, we, we did the same for clean electricity regulations. We presented the framework, and then shortly after we presented the draft regulations, uh, we're, we're following the same path with the cap on, on oil and gas emissions. We're deploying measures and investments at a rate never seen in, in Canadian history. In 2015, investment in, in clean energy in Canada was just north of $3 billion. We've quadrupled that by last year for almost $15 billion. It's happening, but we need more time. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time for this conversation <laughs> today, uh, but I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Catherine. Stephen Gilvoe is the Federal Environment Minister. While politicians have been keen to debate the carbon tax, how much of a priority is it for voters? And how does all of this play at a time when the federal government's popularity with Canadians is faltering? Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. Welcome back to the House. Thanks for having me. Really glad to have you in studio today, Shachi. Now, climate change was ranked a top issue for voters in the last election, according to your polling back in 2021. What do we know about how much people are thinking about something as specific as the carbon tax right now? So think about everything that's happened since mm. 2021, right? That was still a period of a global pandemic. And in fact, we saw climate change still as a top issue, but not the top issue in the same way that it was thinking back to the 2019 election. And of course, now the cost of living crisis has just become this issue that has subsumed and eaten people's heads and brains and their anxieties. And so if people, especially young people, were losing sleep over the future of the planet four or five years ago, and we were seeing that in a really broad way that was driving votes. It's now just been several years of really, I wouldn't say immediate crises, because obviously, we've just come through a year of more climate catastrophe, mm. wildfires and, and flooding and, and other damage. But it's now competing for things that are very, very 
up front in the minds of Canadians, losing loved ones to COVID-19, and now just trying to make your checkbook balance at the end of a week. And so it's interesting when you say that, when we look at Pierre Polyev saying, let's make this the carbon tax election. It's sort of been his challenge to the prime minister. The prime minister has said, listen, this is what the liberals are running on. The last couple of elections have been a carbon tax election. Which parties would benefit if that was indeed the framing of the next election? So Pierre Polyev has thrown down a very interesting gauntlet because within his own base, you still have a majority of people who say that climate change is real. Where the division is for them is on the issue of whether it's caused by humans and industry creating carbon emissions or whether, and I'm using air quotes here, or whether it's caused by other factors. But When it comes to the Liberals, this has been one issue more than any other where Justin Trudeau has been able to consistently claim the political high ground, not wavered, not backed down. The challenge now that he's opened up for himself is with the home heating oil carve out with that exemption for three years, he has, in essence, conceded a point that the price on carbon is maybe not affordable to everybody. Mm -hmm. And whether you're a total political cynic and say, you know, uh, this was entirely politically based and aimed at a region, Atlantic Canada, that has been drifting away from the Liberals uh, when it used to once be a very reliable voting uh, support base for the government, or whether it's really about providing needed relief during a cost of living crisis, a couple of things happen in terms of that line of attack that opens up. So so help me understand why this could be a winning issue for Pierre Polyev. I it's <laughs> I think if he intends to tie it to affordability and cost of living and make the case that carbon pricing is now part of the miasma of factors that is driving a cost of living crisis along with housing and mortgage rates and interest rates and all of those things there may be some room for some traction on it. But I think it's one of those things where it also definitely separates him out from the other two parties, the other three parties, when you're thinking of Quebec, because the bloc is also all in on carbon pricing. And and Quebec, of course, has had its cap and trade system for a very long time. And so if you are a voter who's perhaps dealing with a certain level of fatigue in this government, saying, you know what, it's been eight years of Justin Trudeau, I'm tired and I'm not very happy with what I've seen over the last little while. And this cost of living crisis has really got me down. But you still care about climate, which many millions of Canadians do. Although it's fallen out of, you know, the top one, two issues, it's still up there. Pierre Polyev does risk turning off gettable voters or swingable voters. On the other hand, it may not be something certainly that the conservative base cares about as much. And if he can tie it to cost of living, there's a chance. But to me, it feels a little bit politically risky. Well, he's also making the argument that what the liberals are doing isn't working, that it's not solving the problem. But yeah. one thing I'm, I'm curious about, we know Justin Trudeau and the liberals, they have been struggling in the polls. Do we have any information yet that tells us whether this recent carve out and all the discussion that's come around it has had any impact on their popularity? Well, it's too soon 
to say that, and it's too soon to know that, but you know, stay tuned for data. You know, we're always measuring. But this has been a year where we've seen this government be fairly underwhelming on the major issue that has galvanized Canadians. And again, it's cost of living. So two things are happening at the same time. We've seen a government that has failed to authentically communicate empathy and understanding. And they're really lacking for authentic communicators on that. And what do I mean by that? You've got a finance minister who's the MP for Toronto, Rosedale. And she's had her own problems with the Disney Plus example and, mm-hmm. the, and the idea that she feels the pain of Canadians. The Prime Minister himself, and I'm not, it's not a personal attack, it's not his fault, but he is not known to be someone who comes from an extremely hard scrabble or humble or disadvantaged economic background. So you don't have those front-facing people, and they haven't really put out people, even in their caucus, who can say in a truthful and authentic and lived experience way, I know what it's like. I grew up, you know, in a household that was pressured by income and costs and the cost of living. They haven't done that. And what has happened commensurately is that you've had the Conservatives just pounding on the Liberals on this issue. And it's a winner for them. It's the only issue that's moved the needle for them in eight years. So... What we are hearing from some quarters is some suggestion that perhaps part of the problem is, if I can put it crassly, the salesperson, right? That perhaps the prime minister is the problem for the Liberals. We know former Liberal Senator Percy Down came out Mm. and said perhaps it's time for him to move on. It certainly attracted some attention that former Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney seems to still be mulling the possibility of jumping into politics. What do we know about whether having a different Liberal leader would change the party's political fortunes? Well, if the governing party and if the liberal grandees are hoping for some fresh wind to blow through and get rid of that stale smell coming from the PMO, (laughs) what they're going to be disappointed by is the fact that some of these alternatives are not exactly capturing the attention of Canadians. And in fact, some of their net negatives, so their disapproval or negative perception numbers are as bad as the prime ministers, or you're dealing with people like Mark Carney, who, although they have a high profile in political circles, are not exactly household names. That represents an opportunity for the opposition to rush in and define them and try and take them down before they have a chance to get back up. But in the meantime, a lot of these replacements are only garnering the enthusiasm of existing liberal voters. What they're going to need to do is a whole lot better than that. It is a snapshot of a fascinating time in Canadian politics. Thank you so much, Shachi. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Shachi Curl is president of the Angus Reid Institute. In just a moment on the House podcast, members of Parliament open up like never before about their personal connections to the opioid crisis. Stay with us. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to Canada's most popular political affairs program. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. You can find news and interviews on our website, cbc.ca slash the house. It happens to real people. It happens to normal people. It happens to your next door neighbor. And it happens to people that you would never expect it to happen to. It's just constant. I'm I'm afraid to check my phone at times because I'm worried. I'm going to get another message about somebody else who's died. It's just nonstop. We lost four people in one week, and we knew them by names. With what other health condition would you think is normal 
to know that people are dying to the degree that they are today, that you think we, we're not going to do everything we can to, to stop that from happening, to save lives. But it is happening, and this is where it is at. So we have to do something. I, I, I don't have all the answers. I just know that something has to be done. Those are the voices of some of the politicians who helped shape the policy debate about the toxic drug crisis in Canada. In our special coverage this fall, we've heard how some advocate for supervised injection sites and safer supply of drugs, while others focus squarely on treatment beds and recovery. But for some MPs, it's all very personal. And the experiences of these decision makers help drive their politics. Today, they're telling their stories. Starting first with the NDP MP for Courtney Alberni, Gord Johns. I was in Vancouver at the airport and, and I took a phone call and, and I found out about two young boys, 17 years old, that had died together from toxic poison drugs. And, and I knew one of the boys. He was in and out of the child welfare system. He was a, a friend of my son's. I, you know, watched this young boy grow up and, you know, he didn't have a fighting chance and just the, just the feeling, the overwhelming sense of pain from his loss. Um, I think part of it was guilt, like the, the colossal failure of all of us to tackle this crisis, to, to respond to it and, and to prevent people like him from dying. I'm Todd Doherty, I'm the Member of Parliament, uh, the Conservative Member of Parliament for Caribou Prince George. Yeah, it's deeply personal. I uh, have a brother that's currently on the streets, uh, has been on the streets for going back to the 90s now, uh, gripped in this, uh, this epidemic, uh, lost a brother-in-law to uh, overdose, um, had an uncle that was addicted to drugs as well too. My brother, you know, here's a guy that, um, a kid, that was the youngest out of a family that um, uh, where dysfunction and abuse kind of perpetuated our daily lives. And, um, you know, I think for a long time I blamed him for his, his illness and his addiction. And uh, I think it's a product of what we grew up in. gone into uh, drug houses. I paid this debt off with bikers and uh, the drug dealers. Um, we pulled them off of a bridge uh, in the middle of the night. Um, you know, we brought them into our home, scoured the streets in many cities in, uh, in our province, uh, you know, trying to find him to make sure he was alive, you know, um, it's something else to uh, look in dumpsters for your, you know, for a loved one's body. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's something else. We know he's still on the streets, um, but every day we live. You know, you expect to get that phone call. Um, that he's either overdosed or, or uh, he was, you know, murdered in some, you know, another drug deal gone bad or something. So, yeah, we just know he's on the streets. 
Patty Haidu, Member of Parliament, Thunder Bay Superior North. Prior to this work, I ran a large homeless shelter in Northern Ontario. I have witnessed people who have died of overdose. I mean, it's probably one of the most traumatic work experiences of my life, attending the shelter late at night where a young man lost his life. But I'll never forget the call to his mother. And you know, they were not close. This young person had just been released from prison. It's a very uh, sensitive time for an opioid user. They've been sober for a long time and they don't necessarily remember or know uh, what dose will be safe for them. And um, this mom asked me for help finding clothes to bury her child. They were living in a really desperately poor situation with no financial resources. Um, and she was devastated that she had lost her son and she deserved all the respect in the world. John Barlow, Member of Parliament for Foothills, Southern Alberta, Conservative Party. For my wife and I, we went through this with our, our oldest daughter. And for us, it was, it was like a bolt of lightning. Um, we uh, had kind of lost track of her for, for a few weeks. Um, you know, obviously as parents, you're, you're phoning, you're, you're texting, you're Facebook messenger, whatever you can do to kind of keep in touch. And uh, finally, um, I drove up to Calgary uh, went to her apartment and just pounded on the door for what seemed like half an hour until uh, she finally answered. And I will never forget um, opening, opening the door and seeing her there. She didn't, didn't look like my, my kid, didn't look like my daughter. Uh, it was the scariest moment in my life. Um, now, thankfully, uh, I'm extremely proud of her, how she has recovered and is doing so well eight years later. Um, but at that moment, I thought I'd lost my daughter. Uh, I really assumed that I would take her to the hospital and they would immediately put her in a treatment program. But for the doctor to come out basically and say, yeah, she's overdosed on fentanyl, um, she's good to go, you can take her home. I, I, I couldn't believe it. It was like, you're on your own. I'm Brendan Hanley. I'm the Member of Parliament for the Yukon and I'm a member of the Liberal Party. When I worked in my role as Chief Medical Officer of Health and we had those early cases of deaths associated with fentanyl, that started in 2016. And so it was this kind of deep realization that this was now, now here, in, that the inevitable had now arrived. I could compare it to the first case of COVID that we had in the Yukon Territory. We knew that COVID at some time was going to happen in the territory and we were building and building our preparedness. But the first case had such a dramatic effect on that. It was a shock to the territory. And I would say that the first death that we had that was with a, from a fentanyl overdose was that same kind of shock. I'm Jenny Kwan, I'm a member of parliament for Vancouver East for the NDP. I remember in the early days I participated in a rally in the community where in a local park, the Oppenheimer Park in Vancouver's uh, downtown east side, the community pegged it as the killing fields. And in those days they actually planted a thousand crosses. Each cross had a name on it. It was uh, somebody's brother, somebody's sister somebody's son, somebody's aunt, somebody's uncle whose lives been lost. And at that time, what were we fighting for? We were fighting for the government to recognize harm reduction, to uh, bring in a supervised injection facility. 
Nobody wants their loved ones to have an addiction. My name is Ariel Kaibaga. I'm the Liberal Member of Parliament for London West. I actually can confidently say that in London, almost everybody knows somebody who has been affected by the opioid crisis. A friend of mine who I went to high school with um, recently passed um, earlier this year, and, um, but he, he had actually been uh, well for, for a number of months. He was starting his life. He uh, got an apartment in one of our wraparound services. I remember helping his family get on the list. And um, it was the first day, actually, that the first week that he got into his apartment. Uh, he must have lived there on Monday. From Monday to Wednesday, on Wednesday, he was found dead. What I learned from it is that it is a very um, aggressive disease. If you say this is urgent, where's the plan? Where's the plan with a timeline and resources? They spent less than 1% responding to this crisis than they did on COVID-19. Why? Because of the stigma. The war on drugs has failed, we know that. Everything should be grounded in evidence-based policy and led by experts, not politicians. Make it easier for these, these people to get into recovery. It's frustrating. You know, as I said about my brother, he was saying all the right stuff. You know, if only there was a bed. He was shot twice with a shotgun in, um, just a couple of years ago in a drug deal gone bad. And there's no bed for, available for him for recovery. He said all the right things. This was, he was gonna get better. And, um, you know, still had tubes and everything sticking out of him. And, back on the streets again. There's not a one size fits all, but all avenues must lead to recovery. It has to lead to recovery. We have to give people a chance. We have to fight for them. I used to say at the shelter, when people come to the door looking for safe supplies, clean needles, you know, uh, pipes that are clean, etc., what they're saying is, I still have hope I could get better. And if I get better, I don't want to have HIV or hepatitis C. That's a health-seeking behavior. And so if we reframe that as about, in, in the sense that that's a hopefulness that people have, you know, imagine if they didn't care enough to go and get a clean needle. That means someone's given up hope that there's really anything to look forward to. So to me, that's the first thing, to understand that harm reduction is, is a health-seeking behavior. We have to continue to be brave and bold in trying new things. Dead people don't detox. So you can say as much as you want to say that recovery is the only option for you. And when you know that for a lot of people, that is not the option, at least not at that stage. They will tell you that people who have addiction issues can relapse and do relapse. That does not mean to say that's a failure of the program. It is life. This is what life is about. So don't look at that, that relapse as a failure, but rather part of the journey to heal. That's what we got to get to. It almost seems like we've just taken a shotgun approach to this without a real focused, um, coordinated effort on what programs work, what don't, where is the best use of our resources, and to ensure that uh, Canadians suffering with addiction have access to the programs that they need. Uh, and that's what I experienced with, with my daughter. There was no treatment program for her to get into that right away. Um, we had to wait. You know, weeks before 
uh, she would be able to access one. And it made, it made it that much tougher to make sure that she was okay and didn't relapse. And, and I'm sure she, if she was here right now, she would say, oh my gosh, she wouldn't leave me alone. Um, but we wouldn't leave her alone. We, we kept an eye on her every day and I feel we're just perpetuating an ongoing crisis and hoping that it, re it resolves itself, right? If we just uh, kind of put a lot of money out there and, and put the safe supply out there, this, this will somehow solve itself. It's clearly not working. Clearly something else has to be done. What that solution is, I don't think there is a definitive answer, but gosh darn it, we have to start putting some effort into this. Uh, this cannot carry on the way it is. I also think we need compassion in working with each other, whatever our political stripe is. I haven't met anyone who isn't struck by the intensity of this epidemic. And even though there are many different ideas on the table of what we need to do better, we need to bring that compassion as we work together with each other to solve this problem. That was Liberal MP and former Chief Medical Officer of Health for the Yukon, Brendan Handley. You also heard Conservatives Todd Doherty and John Barlow, NDP MPs Jenny Kwan and Gord Johns, and Liberals Patty Haidu and Ariel Kayabaga. Our coverage of this crisis will continue. In the coming weeks, we'll look at how fentanyl and the chemicals to make it are getting into Canada and whether they can be stopped. I am Lucille Lane. I served in the Women's Royal Canadian Naval Service. I was in the signals branch. We decoded them. Messages from, all, from ships and, and stations all across Canada. It was exciting. I'll tell you one thing. When I was posted to Halifax, people thought, Oh boy, she's going into a den of thieves with all those sailors in it. The sailors treated us with respect. They were glad we were there. We were helping them. We did our part. And because of that, some of the men could go to sea if they needed to, you know. It is very important for Canadians to remember. Some people think they only joined up because they like to fight, but it wasn't that, it was to protect our country. All those people who served and gave up their lives for Canada, I hope people remember. That is Lucy Lane's plea for Remembrance Day. She's 101 years old, one of few remaining veterans from the Second World War. And as there are fewer and fewer people to tell us about past conflicts, and as the truth is under threat in an age of misinformation and disinformation online, how do we safeguard our history? How can we best remember our past on Remembrance Day and beyond? Here with me in studio to discuss... Rachel Kalachaw is president of the Social Studies Educators Network of Canada. She's also a former history teacher, now an advisor with Elections Canada. Tim Cook is chief historian and director of research at the Canadian War Museum. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you, Catherine. Great to be with you. You heard veteran Lucille Lane's message off the top. 
when it comes to remembering and understanding our past, are we doing a good enough job? Tim? Well, isn't it amazing to hear a veteran talk about her experiences, you know, 100 years old, as you said, uh, but also to think of one of the 50,000 women who served in the Second World War, a story that most Canadians probably don't know about, because we think of largely maybe the fighting fronts, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force in battle, but so many Canadians served. Um, Are we doing a good job? Well, I'm a historian. I've (laughs) devoted most of my life to this. We can always do better, but, you know, remembering the past, thinking about the past critically, understanding history of both the horror and the heroes involved in this, um, it takes work. And I think um, if there's a battle to be won, it is the battle against apathy. It's the fight against forgetting. It's the need for us to do the work because this stuff matters. Our history is what grounds us to the past. It, uh, I think, allows us to know the country we are in today that we have inherited, and maybe it's a way to allow us to move forward. Rachel Collishaw, when you look at, for example, the the staggering numbers uh, that surveys suggest of young people who question the Holocaust, for instance, is that a sign that we're not doing enough of the work Tim is talking about? I think probably it is. And I know that social studies teachers across the country work really hard to make that remembrance, you know, real, both for the Holocaust and for, you know, all the other conflicts that Canada was involved in. And I think It's becoming a different task as we move from people who personally remember those that fought in the First and Second World Wars and now into, you know, many teachers don't personally know people who who fought uh, themselves, let alone the students. Tim, Rachel makes that point about, uh, you know, it's certainly not just young people. There was that, I mean, very prominent internationally seen example of what happened in Parliament in September when all the members of Parliament got up and gave a standing ovation to Yaroslav Hunka, a man who fought on the side of the Nazis. Did it surprise you that that group of people would not recognize what was happening in that moment? Oh, I I was uh, surprised. I was horrified. I wish it had not happened. It's deeply embarrassing across the country and, frankly, uh, around the world. It's probably one of those stark reminders of how we do need to understand our our collective history and past. They happen every once in a while. Um, Maybe none quite so starkly as that. It again comes back to that point of how do we teach our history? Uh, What are we teaching in history? And Rachel knows this really (laughs) well. You know, I've been doing this for 25 years. I've always been so deeply impressed with our history teachers in Ontario at the grade 10 level who try to instill in their students an understanding of the past. They have all kinds of interesting ways to do that, connecting to the names of fallen people on memorials and doing primary research at the Library Archives or at the Canadian War Museum, listening to first-hand accounts, uh, interviews, um, looking at archival documents. This helps to make the history come alive because, as Rachel said, many of us are not connected anymore to the Great War, certainly, uh, probably the Second World War and the Korean War and the early Cold War as well. So it can be a foreign topic, a land we do not understand. And yet, I think most of us would agree that these are important stories to understand, to situate ourselves and to to know our country and to know our communities and perhaps even to know our families. If I can pick up on that, Tim, I I think it's not just about what we're teaching in the classroom. It's also about 
giving them that desire to continue learning history because we know that learning doesn't end at grade 10. Um, we want students to kind of enjoy learning about the past to some degree and to keep asking those questions over their lifetime. Let me ask you, Rachel, about how trust plays into this. I mean, we hear so much about how we're in this time of misinformation, disinformation. There's also less trust in news, in our institutions. Mm -hmm. Can we rely on people trusting their history teachers or trusting museums? Well, I think that kind of speaks to the approaches that history teachers are taking now, where we're really having students examine those primary documents themselves Mm -hmm. and put themselves in the position of historians and kind of work through historical thinking processes to kind of arrive at their own conclusions. So, you know, the Great War and the Second World War certainly offer great opportunities for students to do that through the war records and through individual veteran testimony pieces as well. So it's it's a rich, a rich documentary evidence to engage students with stories that happen right across Canada in every community. Tim, it, it does quickly seem to link with the conversation that has been happening in Canada and elsewhere where people are calling into question monuments, commemorations, often around historical figures where people are questioning the actions of the past. Do you think those discussions have implications for how we remember? Oh, I think they do. And often it's maybe framed in a very negative way. We're canceling someone in the past, we're tearing down a monument, we're changing a name. But uh, what it does, I think, also is allows us to talk about those things. You know, what was Sir John A. Macdonald's legacy? How should we talk about residential schools? And and those debates and discussions continue across society. They're often led by journalists and the media, but they're in classrooms as well. Now, uh, you know, personally, as a historian, I would rather we didn't tear down the past. We tried to understand those historical actors in the context of the time, at the very least, most people in the past didn't haven't lived through the rights revolution as we have been lucky enough to do. So uh, the job of the historian is to try to understand people in the past. But the memorialization of the past or the commemoration of the past, that is always changing. And in my books, I've looked at Vimy or other things where the ebb and flow of a period or an event over time, I think of Remembrance Day, that was all but uh, ignored by Canadians in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, There are all kinds of debates among veterans and in the House of Commons that maybe Remembrance Day is dying out because nobody cares. And so just a couple of examples there of the way that history and our knowledge of it and how we think about it and how we make meaning of the past changes from society to society, generation to generation. What I would argue and put a modest plea out, I guess, is that it's always important to have that conversation and to keep talking and to keep teaching. Are those kinds of conversations helpful in terms of what happens in the classroom, Uh, Rachel? Certainly. I've just been listening to Tim and and thinking, yeah, that's exactly, it's a great opportunity to bring that conversation into the classroom to engage students in, you know, should we keep this monument or not? What are the arguments, you know, for, against? What's the evidence? Who was this person? It can really bring bring that piece in. It's so interesting because we often think about this or part of that discussion is, well, are we erasing a piece of history? So it's interesting to hear you talk about it as in fact, helping people engage with their history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely feel that we need to keep having that conversation. And the classroom is such a, a special place to have those conversations because as teachers, you know, it's our job to keep that 
a safe space for all students, but also a space where you can bring differing points of view. And in fact, that's kind of the goal to prepare students to be citizens is to, you know, have these conversations respectfully and to hear as many points of view as as we can before making decisions. Thank you both so much for this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you. Rachel Collishaw is president of the Social Studies Educators Network of Canada, and Tim Cook is chief historian at the Canadian War Museum. And one more thing before we go. History was made this week on the floor of the Senate chamber. Today, I will be delivering my statement in Michif, the language that the Métis grandfathers and grandmothers spoke. On Thursday, Senator Yvonne Boyer rose in the Red Chamber to speak a language never before used in Parliament. This language that I'm speaking is called Michif. The Michif language has been around for a long time. From us, we made it ourselves. It is our language. Our old people are working hard, so our language doesn't die. I'm trying to speak my language. If we lose our language, we will lose who we are and our nation. I urge everyone here to support the preservation and revival of Michif and other Indigenous languages. It's crucial for us to embrace our culture, to empower our communities, and to ensure that the Michif voice, once quieted, echoes through generations to come. That is it for us on The House this week. Our crew is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmir, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer, is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.